And now we want to share something special with our listeners, introducing Lit and Lit Extra, the new hot sauce IEX just created. We're calling it the official unofficial hot sauce of the stock market. It's a perfect blend of spice and high performance flavor. You'll definitely want to get your hands on some. You can check it out at iextrading.com slash podcast to get your fix while supplies last or tag us at IEX and let us know how you like it. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Uh, normally, I say things like this next guest probably needs no introduction, but I actually mean it this time. Uh, <laughs> we are very, very pleased to have Anthony Scaramucci, founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital. We've today. got the mooch with the mooch. Welcome to Boxes and Lines. That's it, Anthony, by the way, just so you've it's terrible. The- <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I've been on working on it. On a scale it. of one to 10 as an Irish bro, that was like a minus 17. But- <laughs> Thank you. I've been terrible. saying he sounds more like Mrs. Doubtfire for the past <laughs> I, I, two oh years. Oh, my God. I'm ready to set his boot right. on fire. You know? <laughs> Remember Mrs. Doubtfire's boobs? <laughs> yes, yes. In front of the yes. stove? Oh, God. Can, we, 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 we would do that. I was oh, giving him ammunition. Terrible. This is perfect. Thank you so much. This is the best start we've ever had. So as, as we're interviewing Anthony and before we got on, we, uh, we noticed in the background, we can see his full office and it looks like most of the desks there are full. So it's great to see the office back in full swing, Anthony. Well, um, everybody's spaced out pursuant to what yep. the requirements are. So yes, I mean, the good news is I have a lot of space here. And so We've been able to move people around and, and, and make it easy. We also have an office in, in Florida, which people are using, but we made a decision. You know, we were one of the first people to close, actually. We made the decision to close, I think it was March 6th, which was that Friday. That was early. That was the week before most everyone else. Yeah. So I think we made the decision to close then, and now we've made the decision to open. And again, I'm very concerned about the health and safety of everybody, but I'm also feeling that if everybody's vaccinated, which everybody is, thankfully, we're back together, I think we'll grow more. And I can already tell our productivity is up. So uh, I'm sort of in Jamie Dimon's camp with this stuff where, yes, you know, if you're commuting, it's a hassle to commute. But I think there's more comity and there's more togetherness being together and seeing each other. And I also think it's motivating for our salespeople to be in the same room together. Yeah, yeah I think absolutely. It's, great. it's really gratifying to see a room full of people behind you because, uh, you know, I think we've all gotten um, tired of this remote working uh, like ad infinitum. It's it's yeah. nice to be back. Yeah, but it's also valuable. I mean, look at, you know, this podcast as an example uh, people hopefully will listen in. Uh, we do our salt talk series. In some cases, we've had 70,000 views. I don't think that that would have ever happened if we didn't have a pandemic, frankly. So I think you know, hopefully we can have this hybrid approach going forward uh, where people feel more comfortable doing Zoom and, and conference calls uh, remotely, but then they also have that opportunity to meet face-to-face. So hopefully yeah. things get better. Hopefully there's a silver lining to all of this, basically. Yeah, we, we in our office, uh, we have about 140 people now. We, we've been back to some degree since early October of last year. But now with the vaccinations being readily available, I believe everybody back is vaccinated. And, you know, you you wear your mask when you're on the subway and you're commuting, but within the office, I feel very safe. And I agree with you completely. And particularly with the sales team, Uh, we hired a number of our sales team while we were out of the office. So getting people together and interacting with each other, the productivity is much higher. And then you do have things like Zoom and Teams that we use to interact with those employees that are not back. And I, w- I would definitely say prior to the pandemic, if anyone asked me to get on a video call, I would, I mean, maybe I'm old fashioned, I kind of said no fucking way. And now we've become very well used to using it. In fact, it, the interesting part is you meet people who've been working at the firm for six months that you never actually met. And when you meet them in person, <laughs> it's not that strange. They, they, they're, they're pretty familiar. And I don't think that would have obviously ever happened without the, uh, the ability to talk on video conference. Mm-hmm. And then you can see me in the office directly running and give me shit. Yeah, you know, just I can't directly. wait. I'm going to yeah. fucking uh, hammer you yeah. on your bad Irish okay. accent now right. that a guest actually yeah. owned up to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you for that. Um, we'll, we'll start some of our questions. Uh, you know, one thing we noticed, uh, you know, we did our usual Google creep before we talked to any guest and noticed that you recently joined CNBC as a, as a commentator. And just curious what drove you to that decision. And before you answer it, um, Another thing, while I was Googling, I thought was really funny. You talked about your time in D.C. 
And then you said you're a front stabber, not a backstabber stabber. And Wall Street are Eagle Scouts comparatively to those you met in D.C. I just thought those were really interesting comments. Well, I mean, it's totally true. I mean, you know, and, you know, whatever my disagreements are with President Trump, he said something uh, about six months after I made that observation. He told Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes that he thought the real estate developers in New York City were a bunch of killers until he got down to Washington and he realized that the <laughs> average person in Washington would make those people look like a bunch of babies, you know, so they're absolutely completely ruthless. Uh, they have virtually no morals. Um, but the other th thing about it is on Wall Street, at least we're on the green team. So I've got money in my pocket, you've got money in your pocket, and we have an objective that's to make more money. So if I'm selling you something, uh, it's because I either need liquidity or I'm gonna, I, I see a better opportunity elsewhere. You see an opportunity to perhaps improve what I'm selling you, or, or there's, a, there's always a uh, relationship in an exchange associated with green. Well, in Washington, they'll take your eyeball out with an ice pick <laughs> closer to the president, or they need to be in a cabinet room position, or they need to be, you know, you know, it could be an argument over your name being in a memo. They don't care. They just take your eyeball out for that. Uh, and the other thing they do is they leak massive information about each other into the press. And so this is a form of uh, character assassination and it's a form of power manipulation. So, you know, look, I mean, money is money. It's probably less important than power to most people as a result of which the stakes are actually lower when it comes to money versus power in people's minds. And so they're willing to be very unscrupulous when it comes to power. And what did Lord Acton say? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. So it's a totally <laughs> different ball, ball game there. They will be nice to your face and almost sycophantic. And then they'll tear you to pieces behind your back. On Wall Street, we come at each other you know, frontally. You know, I said that John's accent sucked. Everybody listening in knows that it did. So they're sitting there saying, okay, that's fucking great. At least Scaramucci's being uh -huh. authentic and honest. You know, uh -huh. on, you on, in Washington, they'd say, John, what a beautiful Irish brogue. And then they to the Washington press that you're the worst accent impersonator in, on the planet. And so uh -huh. it would end up on the front page. I teed this up with Anthony beforehand, John. <laughs> but, no, but the, but, I, I can imagine but you guys, you guys, I, well, when you asked about CNBC, I, yeah. I went to CNBC for a number of different reasons. The main one is related to my business. And also, um, I wanted to return to business. You know, I'm a business person. I'm not a politician. Um, I got into this accidentally. Um, you know, my fault. I got seduced by it. I think that's the big cautionary tale for your podcast listeners. Um, you can be righteous and sanctimonious and judge people but then get into the situation yourself. Uh, and sometimes you'll be falling for the same foibles as the people that you're righteously judging. And so for me, um, I had no interest in ever being in Washington. As an example, uh, I was 53 years old when Donald Trump got elected president. If I had a inkling for politics, I certainly would have gotten a career started in politics well before that. Uh, I thought uh, working for President Trump at that time when he was a candidate was going to set me up as a pretty good political fundraiser for 2020. I didn't think he was going to win the election, uh, but I thought if I was loyal to the party and I sort of did what people were talking about doing. Remember, this is a passe thing now, but in 2016, there was a group of Republican candidates. They all signed pledges that they were going to back the Republican Party candidate. Now, of course, that was to prevent Donald Trump from breaking off a piece of the party uh, and ruining their chances to win the election. So my, uh, my recollection is that Trump did not make the same pledge himself. Yeah. I may, yeah. No, no, he signed it. Uh, did he? OK, yeah, he 100 percent signed it because he was very confident at the time he was going to get the nomination. Mm -hmm. And so, by the way, you know, Jeb signed it. He did not abide to the pledge. Uh, but if you if you get Jeb on the podcast, he would say, well, I didn't abide to the pledge because Donald Trump wasn't a Republican. And so he sort of feels like he did. But, you know, everybody went in a different direction. Ultimately, I made the decision to go work for candidate Trump. He won the election. And then I got seduced by the uh, Washington idea. I also 
had the business sold, you were going to get a tax deferral for the business being sold. There were a lot of uh, economic factors associated with my decision. But the number one factor, and this is probably the most self-damning thing I can say, uh, it was ego-based. And what I would say to you guys is if you're putting your ego and your pride into your decision-making, you inevitably come up with bad decisions. And so um, my wife, basically, she probably hates Donald Trump almost as much as Melania hates him, but I got to give Melania the, the top billing, you know what I mean? Because, you know, it's neck and more, neck. More face-to-face experience with the son of a bitch, but I would say Deirdre's up there, and she basically told me, you know, NFW don't do it. We almost got divorced as a result of it. So, um, you know, it was a bad turn of events, but there's also a positive story there. You know, I own my mistakes. I went back to my business, uh, began the process of rebuilding my business, obviously uh, fixed my marriage, thank God. Uh, but again, uh, you got to learn from these things. Pride and ego, they don't mix well with your decision making. So, um, but I learned a lot. Um, but it's when he started acting crazier and crazier, it became just unsustainable for anybody normal to continue to support him. And what I would tell you is if you didn't have an economic interest alignment with Trump on the political landscape or a power alignment interest, you broke from Trump. And so that would include Secretary Tillerson, Secretary Mattis, Chief of Staff Kelly. Um, I could name for you the people that said, okay, this guy is completely crazy, should not be president. But then if you looked at their career arcs, they were arcing away from President Trump or they had independence. You know, I give Liz Cheney a lot of credit because she's in that interesting position where her political ambition and her political future, uh, she's making a calculus here. She may lose her political future for doing the right thing. It's a sad state of affairs in America to, to say that. Well, you have guys that are willing to accept Trump's lies and, and willing to support him because they think that's the best thing for them to do from an ambition perspective. Yeah, listen, um, um, you don't very rarely hear that level of introspection, so it's it's very commendable. No, and I have to thank you, Anthony, because I run into not want me to ask about Trump at all, and you saved me the trouble, so I appreciate that. I was no, uh, I'm ha- happy happy to talk yeah. about it. Listen, yeah. it's a it's a part of my life I wouldn't replace either, though. You know, like someone would say to me, "Well." Don't you regret it? You had that very bad, you know, fall and tumble. You got unceremoniously fired and blah, blah, blah. No, I don't, I don't reg- regret it. I'm glad I did it. I learned a lot, learned a lot about Washington, learned a lot about myself. Um, and I also think that uh, it was very humbling. And so at the end of the day, it makes you more empathetic for other people. You certainly have been um, active in, um, in the uh, time since the Trump administration. There's a lot of stuff. And Rhonda mentioned the CNBC thing, but you uh, also have your own podcast called Mooch FM. Uh, I think I listened to several of those. Um, very well done. What have you? What do you think is the secret to putting on a good podcast? Because Rhonda and I could use some tips. Uh, please, please say, don't use the oh, shit Irish. Well, you, guys, yeah. you guys put on a great podcast, but I think the secret is good guests and listening. I mean, ultimately... Uh, I try to really listen to what the guests are saying and see if I can draw out what their real essence is. You guys know from your podcast experience and people are spinning you. And then you also know, well, wait a minute, we're now having a conversation uh, that is a private conversation that's being heard publicly. So I just want you to think about that. If your podcast is successful, the people on the podcast are having a private conversation that's being heard publicly as opposed to a public conversation being heard publicly where people are thinking about exactly what they're going to say, how they're going to say it. <laughs> and you, you know, this from cable news punditry, you can flip through the channels and, you know, right away when someone's giving you talking points and somebody's spinning and then you're like, okay, well, wait a minute, that's a totally different, real fresh, really honest answer to something. And I think that, you know, that's going to come into vogue more. I think that's going to be more prevalent. I think people are tired of the over sanitization and over filtering uh, that's going on in the society. Well, the good news is we underprepare, so we never sound can't. We, <laughs> We're we always authentic we because we haven't done enough homework to be any other way. Uh, but anyway, maybe we could jump, not to sound canned as I say that, to like the green team, as you call it, and 
the hedge fund landscape. Like it's been an interesting year and I'd love to talk about Skybridge more and like the SALT conference uh, being in Javits Center this year uh, as opposed to Vegas. But may maybe before we get into that, if you wouldn't mind, you know, talking to us about what the biggest issues impacting hedge funds are today from, from your view. Uh, obviously, GME and the short squeeze and the year that's been in it, may maybe you have some comments there. Well, I mean, you know, the, the GME situation uh, was inevitable because if you're getting uh, close to parity, you'll never be at parity. But if you're getting close to parity, and what do I mean by parity? The individual now has near perfect instant information and relatively, if not costless trading. And so that would take you back to Goldman Sachs in 1995. And so when I sat in the institutional sales area at Goldman, the block trader had a mega advantage over everybody. Why? He was seeing a tremendous amount of order flow. Yep. He had direct lines into all the different hedge funds and all the different buy side people. And so he was able to get a sense for where things were. And then because he was sitting at the turret at Goldman Sachs, he had costless transaction capability. And so we've empowered everybody. This device here has shrunk the world. And so from this device, I can get near-perfect information and I can execute transactions through something like Robinhood. It costs something. Obviously, they're selling the order flow in exchange for that free commission, if you will, but it's relatively costless. And so it would make sense that those people would team up in a bee swarm and go after some of the pros. And so they were successful in doing that in GameStop. Maybe we could say AMC was a success. Uh, but ultimately, uh, it's a long-term sucker's bet because those pros are going to adapt. And you guys know at IEX that you, you know that pros have different and sometimes better information, better equipment. Or let me just say this, if someone's spending 80 or 100 hours a week doing something and someone's doing it part-time from their phone, who has an edge? You know, it's clearly the person that's doing it every day. And, you know, I would love to play basketball against LeBron James, but, you know, the guy's going to take it to me. Uh, and so these people, you know, there's no unfairness in my mind that a professional trader has an advantage over a non-professional trader, any, any more so than it would be me going to Madison Square Garden tonight to play LeBron James. So, so my point is there'll never be investment parity, but as we got closer to it, you could see how a bee swarm could manifest itself to try to take on these guys. Um, so it's, that's it's, my that's my observation of it. Uh, my heart's with these people. I get it. But my money is with people like Steve Cohen. It's ultimately OK to say that the average Joe can't compete with with the pros. And I think it's a totally fair thing to say. So, so I like how you phrased it, because even like IEX and, and our business, and we talk about how many billions are spent in just technology and fractions of a second to trade you, ju you just you just can't compete within that space you want to make the system as fair as possible you want to make sure that nobody has a material advantage related to information that was reg fd which is probably now almost 25 years old uh but the flip side is you also have to recognize that if you guys are spending billions of dollars on your information and your information flow and your exchange data and all that software uh, it should be, you know, it's a free market. So if someone else wants to spend that money, well, go ahead. Well, sure. And of course, have parity with you, you know. We're not trading against the interests of our customers, which is, you know, sort of a, diff a different kind well, of Well, no, issue, your business so. model is actually a, a new and improved version. You're, you're basically, uh, you're giving everybody a fairness assessment, you know, you know, people would come to you guys so that they could avoid the nonsense that goes on at some of the other exchanges. So that business model in itself is the reason why you guys have grown. And that's, a, that, that, that's a reason why you guys have ultimately been very successful. And so that, that's another interesting argument about culture. So the more fair you are, the more upfront you are, and the more transparent you are, uh, over time, that's good brand building. I think that leads to a lot more wallet share over time. Well, well, that's our hope. But I, I am interested on the retail front. Uh, you, you know, you had uh, before we started, you talked about having, you know, generally kind of libertarian mindset. And so uh, presumably you want to give retail customers 
who want to trade through platforms like Robinhood, the freedom to be able to do that. But do you think there is a concern where you have groups like that that are using all of the tools that are available to them to incentivize individual folks to trade as much as they can because more trading is more profitable for those firms. Um, roping in a lot of people who don't have much experience and are likely to lose a lot of money because they don't know what the hell they're doing. Um, it, 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 is that a concern? Is that something that regulators ought to be looking at? Okay, so it's a, it's a very big metaphysical and philosophical question. So, you, you know, I, I almost have to ask you a question. Where were you on the big gulp? So should I be able to go into the 7-Eleven and <laughs> dial up the big gulp or not? You know, and so it's the same sort of thing with the trading. So I can tell when someone's going to lose their shirt trading and I can tell when someone's got a level of sophistication related to trading. OK, but now am I imposing my will on those people? Am I going to be the referee that can score that? Do we want regulators in the space where they say, OK, let me look at you. Oh, wait a minute. Your education is X, Y, Z. Therefore, you shouldn't be able to trade on Robinhood, but your education is ZYX and you should. And here's something I learned at Harvard. Um, I didn't learn much at Harvard. I can tell you, when I went to Harvard Law School. I learned two things at Harvard Law School. You want to hear the two things? No, number one, don't be a lawyer. That was the first thing I learned. Okay? <laughs> and then the second thing was to avoid loss, lawsuits. But a third thing, equally important, is that the kids at Harvard Law School that I went to school with, they were no smarter than the kids in my neighborhood. We're no smarter. So the kids in my neighborhood were putting in sheetrock, auto glass. They were in delis uh, cutting cold cuts, but they were wickedly smart. They just didn't have the opportunity or they didn't have the career guidance system of, of parenting or the self-guidance system that got them into Harvard Law School. So I, if I'm sitting there with these hoity-toity people who think they're super smart because they're going to Harvard, they may not be as smart as some of the guys that are clamming out here on Long Island. You know, I have a cousin in the auto glass business. Uh, he's done incredibly well. Uh, and he's actually a pretty adept stock market trader. Uh, and he's installing auto glass every day. So should he, should the regulators say to him, hey, look, I'm sorry, you didn't go to XYZ uh, training. And so therefore you shouldn't be trading your own money that you made and you paid your taxes on or now in your savings account, we should sort of tell you whether or not you can do this or not. I don't, I don't buy into that, you know? So, so that's me. Uh, should we make it fair? Yes. Should the regulators be watching broker dealers to make sure they have the right capital requirements? Yes. Should we make sure that they're not getting ripped off? Yes. Should people be able to sell penny stocks and, you know, pretend that, you know, they're worth something when they're not and the prospectus is phony? No, we shouldn't have that. But if someone wants to buy 100 shares of Microsoft or 100 shares of Apple Computer and they made money and it's done on IEX or a legitimate exchange, I don't, I don't see why we should be stopping that. That's my honest opinion. That's a great answer. Again, remember, we're all products of our upbringing. So, you know, yeah. that's my upbringing. That's how I got raised. And I'm like observing the people in a blue collar neighborhood say they're really not dumber than the white collar people, these different opportunities. And trust me, there's a lot of white collar descendant dummies out there. You guys know that. I mean, come mm -hmm. on. I, absolutely. I, we John, could, John's a lawyer. Ronan and I could name a number. I'd like to try, that's a setup. Yeah, so I mean, it's not, okay, you know, here. so at the, at the end yeah. of the day, if you really do have some libertarian bend to your personality, you're like, well, it's my money. I should be able to do what I want with my money as long as I'm not hurting anybody. And oh, by the way, if I put my money into something and I lose it, as long as I've lost it legally, I didn't buy a penny stock that someone promised me something like Jordan Belford. It was a total lie. It was based on a total fabrication, you know? Yeah, yeah it's a very different scenario. I agree. Um, before, before we move on, I, I just wanted to talk really quick about SALT Conference. I, obviously, I'm sure most of our listeners know what it is, but if you wouldn't mind giving a quick summary of it, Anthony, and uh, why it's in New York rather than Vegas this year. And and, and may, maybe maybe that's just stating the obvious because of COVID. I'm just kind of curious. Oh, you know, we've had you guys, we had the IEX guys out there. I've had uh, Brad, obviously, on Wall Street Week, my old show. Um, you know, what the SALT Conference, I'll, I'll talk about its origination first and then talk about how it evolved. Um, we decided to do the SALT Conference in 2009 
uh, I'll take you back to those moments. The Dow was at 6,500. The S&P was at like 666. I remember that ominous number. <laughs> uh, it was March 9th of 2009. And so if you look at where the S&P is today or the Dow, yeah. comparatively, incredible. Um, that's where we were. Uh, and things felt terrible. And lots of big commercial and investment banks got money from the federal government, TARP money. Um, and so they started canceling their conferences in Las Vegas. And so we were a very small company at the time. I said, you know what? Uh, this is a big opportunity. They're making a mistake canceling these conferences. Uh, I'm going to go start a conference. I reached out to the mayor of the city of Las Vegas. He put me in touch with Steve Wynn. We got the rooms at the brand new Encore Hotel at $99 a night. Uh, and so we booked a room block and I went out there and marketed it. I had uh, Michael Milken, Dick Gephardt as my two keynote speakers alongside of General Wesley Clark. And so that was our conference. We had 300 people. It was reasonably successful, but I think it marked the bottom of the industry, frankly. It was May of 2009. By the very next year, the markets had taken off. We had purchased Citibank's fund of funds business and their their seeding business. We closed on that in July of 2010. And so now we had moved over to the Bellagio as a bigger venue. So what did the conference ultimately become? It became an investment conference, macroeconomic conference, a political discussion. We had uh, President Clinton there in 2010, President Bush in 2011. We had people like Governor Romney there, four different uh, UK-based prime ministers, ex-prime ministers, uh, three CIA directors, including David Petraeus. Uh, 2017, we brought Vice President Biden. Uh, and so what it ultimately became is a thought leadership conference that had an element of entertainment, including people like Will Smith and Ron Howard, an element of uh, hedge fund managers, including people like Bill Ackman or Steve Cohen or Dan Loeb or Paul Singer, David Tepper. Um, but it was a whole genre of different people, politicians, policymakers. Uh, Dr. Bernanke came a few times, um, which was a lot of fun for us. Uh, I was about to invite Janet Yellen, but it looks like she's predisposed in another job. Um, <laughs> but we had her slated to come in 2020 before the pandemic. And so for us, it's been a, uh, it's been a great experience. We've done the conference 14 times, 10 times in Las Vegas, once in Tokyo, twice in Singapore. And our most recent conference was in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and we decided this year that we'd bring the conference to New York because of the situation and what's going on here in New York. It's our home city. We love the city. Uh, the Javits Center is uh, building a VIP area. I mean, it was actually this morning over at Hudson Yards, uh, touring conference facilities and restaurants to get a sense of, of the size and scope of the space. And so we hope to be there. I hope to have you guys there. Hopefully you bring your podcast there. Uh, we set up uh, a podcast sort of facility, if you will, with cubicles and microphones for people to oh, wow. uh, run their podcast well, there. And then we have our team. We'll help you get guests. Uh, be be, be no careful shortage. what you wish for there, Anthony. But yeah, I we'll love, you know, love we that. There'll be no shortage that. of guests yeah. for you guys to draw from as well. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, we'd it, love to do that. It's so great that you're doing this in New York and that you're doing it in person. And I, I also, that leads to a question I wanted to ask you as a native New Yorker. Well, let me say something non-libertarian, though. I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. As yeah, no, I was just going to ask you as a native New Yorker, your sense about uh, the the prospect for the business community in New York and ability to rebound. Uh, you know, there's all of these kind of naysayers saying oh, New York's never going to be the same again. We're all going to move to Florida. Uh, I, I'm interested to get your thoughts on that. Well, listen, I mean, you know, if you really study the history of the city, there's been about seven or eight obituaries written about New York. Uh, you know, there was one written about New York uh, in the 1840s after a plague had hit the city. There was one written about it in the 1870s, right after the Civil War ended. Uh, and then obviously you had the panic of 1907. Then you had the stock market crash in 1929. Then you had the Second World War, where people were afraid the city was going to be bombed. Um, you had the 60s and 70s, which was tremendous blight and crime in the city. You had the apex of my memory as an adult, which was 92, 93. Uh, Giuliani, Giuliani had lost the election in 89. And you're sort of back to that, that era, if you will, where you've got higher crime, more homeless people, lots of desolation, lots of vacancies. 
Um, but the city always came back. There was always some level of resiliency in the city. Some of it is its location. Some of it is its draw from the rest of the world, from an immigration and intellectual capital perspective. And some of it is good management, good executive management. So uh, what I will say, and I'm looking at Mayor Giuliani the way he was, not the way he is today, but I'm talking about the mayor from 30 years ago. Uh, I think he did some very smart executive decisions to help clean up the city. Uh, and we learned a lot from the mayor in terms of police enforcement and police management. Nothing's perfect. Um, Mike Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg took the city for 12 years and you can sit back and look at the 20 years of great executive management of the city led to a very high quality of life in the five boroughs with a very steep reduction in crime. Now, unfortunately, Bill de Blasio, probably the worst mayor in our modern history, uh, you know, maybe you guys like him, but I have to be honest, I haven't found one person, liberal <laughs> or conservative, that likes Bill de Blasio. I don't know anybody that could look at his eight years as mayor and say, well, that was a resounding success. You know, the city's less safe, it's more filthy, there's shootings, there's a mo most recent shooting in Times Square right by my restaurant that's been shuttered for a year. Uh, you've got, uh, you're stepping over homeless people everywhere. Uh, it's been grossly mismanaged the city yet. He's increased the city's budget uh, by about 28, $29 billion, depending on how you want to account for it, which is mind boggling. So he's increased the budget by about 40% and destroyed the quality of life in the city. So I understand why there's a lot of pessimism for the, every reason that I just gave. But if you can get somebody like an Eric Adams or you can get somebody like, uh, uh, you know, Yang, as an example, Andrew Yang would be a great choice. One of those two uh, guys winning the city. I think they're centrist. I think they're left leaning enough on social issues. But I think that they're good executives where they could actually manage the process of the city and do some of the best practices of the prior 20 years administrations. And again, stop and frisk. We can argue about it all day long. If the African-American community thinks it's racist, then definitionally it's racist. We've got to change that methodology. Um, but you know how we're dealing with the homeless crisis or the drug crisis or the gang style shooting crisis going on in the city, I think that there are things we can do to make those things better, which enhance the quality of life. So. I'm giving you too long of an answer, but no, the city's coming back. The city will come back. Uh, it'll take some time to address everything that went wrong. Uh, the city was in peak operating performance in 2013, and we're back to that 1992-93 Nader uh, before Giuliani took over, and, and Bill de Blasio and his team are responsible for that. Yeah, look, I, my family and I emigrated here from Dublin, Ireland in 1990, and I remember you know, the Channel 11 news was a big deal, like every night, the nine o'clock news, I think it was a 10 o'clock news. And you would see things like person stabbed with screwdriver on subway, someone shot in Times Square. And like a lot of that press is very similar right now. And I'm trying to tell my wife, you know, it's it's safe in the city. And, and what I would say, and I, I'm not saying it's already solved yet, but even seeing your office behind you, Anthony, and when we're back in the office the past like month or so, compared to, compared to like October when we first came back, there's more and more people coming back. And I, I do, I, I agree with you. It's not really prophetic as I say it, but I think, I think New York will, will definitely come back. People well, want to be back in there and I, embrace one I, I, th I think it will come back, but you've got to remember this, okay? You know, you got to get yourself involved in the hiring decisions because let me just take a step back. Let's talk about New York City taxes for a second. If you're a New York City resident, you are now the minority partner in your own life. So if 100 cents comes in and you're at a high tax rate, well, you know, you're going to keep 47 cents, 53 cents is going out the door now to Bill de Blasio, Andrew Cuomo and Joe Biden. They're now the majority partners in your life. And so what I tell people, your indifference to politics, and again, I don't mean the two of you, but I'm saying you as a second person generic your indifference to politics is very costly because it does affect the quality of your life. Uh, appropriate policing, filling potholes, 
making sure the homeless are attended to and taken care of or services are brought to them where you can get them off the street, which enhances the quality of life of the rest of the people in the city. All those things are wickedly important. So what ends up happening sometimes is we ignore all that stuff at our peril. We got to get involved in the hiring decisions because they're, they're your majority partner, whether you like it or not. But I agree with you. The city will come back. There's an intellectual vibrance to the city. There's a big draw to this city from the rest of the world. Yes, Miami's a cool city, and I know Mayor Suarez, and I like Mayor Suarez, but this is New York. Think of the vibrancy and the electricity here in New York on a 24-7 basis, and think of the density of intellectual capital here in this area. I, you know, I'm a New Yorker. I told Spike Lee, Spike's doing a documentary <laughs> on the 9-11 tragedy, 20 years later, he's doing it for HBO Max. Oh, I wasn't and, aware of that. And, yeah, so yeah. It's, gonna be, it's gonna be broadcast on HBO September 9th, 10th, and 11th. And of course, the 11th this year is on a Sunday. So he'll, he'll in introduce this six hour documentary starting that Friday night. But I told Spike in the interview, he interviewed me for the documentary. He said, I'm gonna be one of the people shutting the lights off on this city. You know, I mm -hmm. love the city, I'm a New Yorker, I live on Long Island, but I built my business here in this city and I'm a New York Met fan. I'm not going anywhere. Okay. And I tell my kids, relax on the taxes. We'll be smart enough to pay the taxes, whatever the taxes are, we'll pay them. And by the way, you know, we need to pay those taxes because if you're in a city like this, that's attracting this very broad swath of immigrants, um, you're going to need a safety net for those people. Moreover, if you really understand the economics of the United States, the port cities of New York, Boston, Philadelphia, the East Coast ports, even the Southern ports, but mostly the Northeast and the West Coast ports, they drive the economic engine of the entire 50 states. You know, when I was still friendly with Donald Trump and he asked me about the salt tax deduction, I said, listen, I'm not talking about my own interests. If you want to take the money from me, that's fine. But what will happen is on an incremental level, people will migrate out of these areas. They'll move to the South and other places, and you'll put a dent in these areas. And whether you like it or not, you need these areas to create the ex economic rent for the rest of the society. And by the way, New York is putting way more into the federal government every year than we're taking out of the government. So to me, yeah. you know, I think we got to get the policies right. So the places like this maintain their vibrancy because they do have a reverberating positive effect for the rest of the country. Well, I, I really appreciate the answer because I think that uh, I get tired of these nimrods who sort of say that New York is done for um, people who, frankly, I don't think have never have had an appreciation for why New York is different or special. Um, and as you pointed out throughout history, people who have bet against the city um, have ended up being on the, the wrong end of that bet. Go look at the cranes though, you know, take a look. I'm looking outside this window. There are cranes here in Midtown, uh, certainly lots of cranes in Hudson Yards, lots of cranes downtown. Um, I, I do think that we are rebuilding this city again uh, for the future. And I think it will be, you think of what Facebook is doing in Hudson Yards. Think of what Google just did downtown in terms of their expansion, you know, they, they want to have a presence here and they want to have a presence here for a reason. This is a great melting pot, you know, and if they're ethnic, if they're ethnic like me and Ronan and possibly you, Rand, <laughs> they love the food in this place too, man. I mean, this, it's, this, this not is, this it's not bad. It's not the best place for food. <laughs> can, can we jump to one more topic before we, we wrap up today, sort of jumping around here, but this was a great conversation, Anthony. Um, sort of the soup de jour is Bitcoin, right? And um, again, I saw that um, you guys, I, I think you, you in an interview, I, I scribbled in my paper here, but you, you were asked by your team the day after you left the, the White House if you're going into Bitcoin. And then it was either late last year or early this year, you, you launched a Bitcoin fund. I'm just curious, any comments on Bitcoin and just crypto assets in general? So when I, when I left the White House, uh, it, it was very clear to me that digital assets, and there would eventually be a digital dollar and obviously a digital yuan and other digital assets. It was just very clear to me that the regulation was moving in that direction. And so the first thing I did when I got back to Skybridge after my unceremonious firing is I bought the URL, the website, Skybridge Bitcoin, 
Bitcoin.com. Uh, and the reason I bought it is that it will, we're eventually going to roll out a Bitcoin fund. Uh, my first idea was to do a crypto index, which included Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others. And then Galaxy looked like they had that tied up with Bloomberg. And so there was no need to compete there. And so I eventually thought we would be in the crypto space. Um, I waited primarily because I'm an institutionalist. And you have to, so another thing about being an investor, you have to know who you are. Uh, and you have to also know who you're catering to. And so who do we cater to? We cater to individuals and institutions, and we cater to individuals. So what is an individual? That is somebody that's big enough and rich enough to be an institution, uh, but they make decisions in a high net worth individual. It could be Michael Dell as an example. You know, he's got 16 or $17 billion in his family office, but they're making the decisions like an individual, but they're scaled to the size of an institution. So if you think like an institutionalist, um, then you need to have a formal process in place and you have to have a checklist in place where it will help you get your clients comfortable with new ideas or new assets. And so for me, uh, I wrote down in 2017, if the following things happen, we will be in Bitcoin. Uh, what were those things? Number one, it had to reach 100 million users. Uh, I felt that that was proof positive that it was scaling pursuant to Metcalf's law. The idea that Professor Metcalf came up with that you can measure the fundamentals of something and its growth pursuant to the exponential uh, accretion of the network. Obviously, that happened with Facebook and Google and Amazon. Uh, it's interesting that it's happening in a decentralized way with Bitcoin. The second thing that was very important to me was regulation. And I think I, I'd gotten comfortable in Washington, even though I was only there for a short period of time, that they weren't going to overly regulate Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies in that libertarian nature. They were going to let people uh, you know, invest in those things. If people felt with their own money, that's what they wanted to do. And then the third thing, which I thought was probably the most important of the three, was the storage. Um, I, you and I, uh, people know that it was stored on a phone or a BlackBerry and it got destroyed or was stored on a laptop improperly. There could be several million coins of Bitcoin that were actually destroyed yeah, since, the, in, since the origination of Bitcoin. And so if I was going to put several hundred million dollars into Bitcoin, we have probably about $700 million in Bitcoin right now across our product line. I had to make sure that it was stored in a place that I was comfortable with. And so our Bitcoin is stored uh, at uh, NIDIG, which is Ross Stevens's firm, New York Digital yep. Asset in Investment Group. And Fidelity, which is obviously one of the largest asset managers in the world. And so once I hit those three boxes, we started making our Bitcoin investments in October of last year. Coins were probably between eleven dollars and $15,000 at the time. Uh, and then we launched our fund in December, uh, opened it to outside investors in January. And obviously, we've seen this exponential furtherance of Bitcoin. Uh, which some people are startled by, but people that are really studying the user base and studying the explosive exponential growth of that user base, it's not surprising, actually. Uh, if anything, it'll be surprising to me if Bitcoin does not reach $100,000 per coin by the end of this year, that will be more surprising to me than a 50 or 80% downward correction in Bitcoin. Again, it's just based on the fundamentals of Metcalf's law. We think Bitcoin is scaling to at least a billion users by 2025, the end of 2025, and a result of which these coins should be trading at a lot higher prices. And then we can get into the debate, guys, whether it's a store of value or it can be transformed into a global currency. We can have that debate, but I don't think we need to have that debate for this to be a very attractive asset class for our clients. Totally agree. And then you, you, you probably know, but uh, Gary Gensler, who recently took over at the chairman of the SEC, um, I, I mean, I, I myself have been trying to catch up on the whole crypto and Bitcoin. And I've been watching his MIT lectures on YouTube. Mm -hmm. That's pretty mm -hmm. incredible. He seems very, very well versed in this. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, you know, uh, regulation comes into play in his term and you know, do they do they become securities? Is, is there more is there more of an appetite? And obviously, you, you would probably know this better than I uh, for the institutional investor 
uh, to now start buying Bitcoin? Well, well, well certainly the ETFs uh, will be securities. And so he has some yeah. control. Yeah, well, the ETFs, uh, I'm assuming that they'll approve them. The They were approved in Canada with great success. And so um, I think the United States is getting more comfortable with it. I thought uh, Gary's interview uh, last week on Squawk Box was instructive because he's a very verbally disciplined person. And so if you listen to those lectures, and I listened to most of those lectures at MIT, and I suggested this morning on Squawk Box that people listen to the Gary Gensler that was a professor, uh, because he's wearing a different hat now, Gary Gensler, the regulator. And I think as a regulator, he wants more legislative consensus. Uh, but if you listen to him as a professor, he's more or less telling you that digital currencies are going to be a very big part of the future. Yeah, he did an uh, incredible would, job. Yeah, and I, I would say to anybody listening here, uh, if you're not going to listen to Gary, I can sum it up for you in a few sentences. Your phone can eat up your library. It can take up all your music. It can take up all your photos. This has become a miniaturization device for data. And so therefore, it's been a massive improvement from a technological perspective. Money goes through various transformations over the last 5,000 years. You know, it could have been a seashell, wampum, a profile of a Roman political figure stamped onto a, a coin, a metallic coin, or digits in your Chase or Wells Fargo bank account today. Uh, and the point being that Satoshi Nakamoto or the group known as Satoshi Nakamoto Nakamoto's making, well, a decentralized form of money would be easier to trust. If you did it on the blockchain, it would be way more secure. And all of a sudden, if you could take out the middleman, you're going to eliminate a tremendous amount of expenses. And so it would just make sense that if money is a technology, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, but perhaps Bitcoin specifically, because I do believe it's the apex predator, Will, will rise to become a great improvement on currency or a store of value on things like gold. And so Gary makes that case very compellingly as a professor, but as a regulator, he has to wear a different hat. I think he's searching now for a consensus. I don't think he wants to be the first mover. And I think he's doing a very good job of managing the delicacy of what's required as a regulator. So. Um, my guess is it happens, but it'll happen slower than people anticipate, given if, if they listen to Gary as a professor, they think, OK, well, this is going to happen pretty immediately. Yeah. But he's not wearing that hat anymore. Really, really interesting. I think we could talk to you all day about this and about a, a million other things. But in the interest of uh, not upsetting our millennial listeners who like to keep this short, uh, we'll, 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 we'll wrap it up with a question we ask every guest. And. I don't know if you're prepped for it, but you don't really need prep for anything. Uh, what's your favorite Wall Street movie and why? So my favorite Wall Street movie uh, is one that I was asked to be in that I declined. Okay? <laughs> and that is The Wolf of Wall Street. I think that is the uh. funniest, most outrageous <laughs> movie. Uh, and Martin Scorsese invited me to sit at the Rayo's table with Leo DiCaprio and Bo Deedle and those guys. And oh, I, declined, yeah. I declined doing that because Jordan Belford was actually a criminal, a felon, and it was a real life business situation. And I didn't want to put our firm or my reputation in the movie uh, with someone that was actually a real life criminal. So you, what, did they want you as Anthony Scaramucci? Yeah, they wanted, me to, okay. they wanted me to play myself. Mm, yeah. My second favorite movie is actually Wall Street 2 because I actually was myself in that movie. I played myself. I was, <laughs> it was alongside of Josh Brolin and uh, Shia LaBeouf. That was a great time for me. And uh, Oliver Stone asked me to play myself in that movie. It was, you needed crazy glue for your eyelid to see me because if you blink, <laughs> miss me. But I got in that movie. I got to go to Cannes with the, uh, the troupe of actors and uh, to the premiere there in, uh, in Cannes, which was a lot of fun back in 2010. And then Obviously, we did the premiere in September here in New York, which was also great fun. And that movie is a very well-made movie. It didn't get great reviews at the time, but it's a pretty sturdy movie. If you watch that movie today, remember Oliver Stone's father was a stockbroker. So his two movies, Wall Street and Wall Street 2, are very interesting, uh, idyllic movies 
and they capture something that's going on on Wall Street. Um, and so those are the movies I like uh, the most. It's funny. You're absolutely right. And I'm not just saying that. I just watched Wall Street 2 uh, about a you know month or so ago. And I remember when I first saw it, I, I actually went to the premiere in New York and I, I didn't really enjoy it that much. And I don't know if I had built it up from your perception of the first one, but it stands up really well when you watch it now. I think so. You know, yeah. No, I think so. You know, and, and uh, you know, Oliver and I have had that conversation, you know, and I think what happens is your, your, your expectations have changed about the movie. And so I think it was overhyped in 2010. And obviously there was a 23 ish year period of time in between the two movies. So. Yeah, between now and then you're further removed from the financial crisis. And then it kind of it brought back right. memories as to how mental that was at the time. Right. So, yeah, that's, right, exactly. that's really interesting. You're the first guest who's ever said that at Wall Street, too. So that, that is. <laughs> so you should get. And well, I'm also biased. That, OK, I'm still getting. I'm, I hope you guys still rent getting your screen. Actor you guys rent it on the airplane because I still get residuals. <laughs> well, we're you got, got me into the Screen Actors Guild. <laughs> we're pumping it up a little bit for you there, uh, Anthony. So, uh, and just for that, uh, we also have a parting gift, don't we, Ron? Yeah, we give all our guests. You know, we 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 sent you a fleece, so you, you got our best. But um, there you got the fleece. Well, a hoodie. I mean, uh, we all our guests who join us on Boxes and Lines get a pair of Boxes and Lines socks. And <laughs> as as corny as they sound, they're actually really comfortable socks. Because well, I, found... I gotta tell you, if they're if they're as comfortable as a hoodie you sent yeah. me, I'm I'm mm-hmm. good to go. Mm-hmm. I was looking for that hoodie this morning, but my wife told me my 21 year old has abducted the hoodie. I was gonna wear it on your uh, podcast, so you got stuck nice. with a less fashion forward skybridge hoodie for this podcast that's a good looking hoodie though too thank you <laughs> well and anthony we, we really really appreciate it. honestly like i said before we, we we could talk for hours with you i'm sure anyone can you're you're a talented man in many many ways and we're honored that you joined us on this podcast so so rona can we end this on a super positive note sure thing yeah mm-hmm. John, you got to go for elocution lessons related to your. Yeah, okay. All right. I, you know, I'll do it. Right? You know what? Because he usually I, ends I, this. Don't don't know, I, figured, I figured out that this would rile him up. That's why I'm bringing it up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, look, look at the look on him now. He, John normally ends it with a thank you. For boxes, thank you. and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.